Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and a co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Dr. Thomas Wells, a research fellow in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne and author of Narrating Democracy in Myanmar, The Struggle Between Activists, Democratic Leaders and Aid Workers, published by Amsterdam University Press in 2021. Narrating Democracy provides a broad-ranging account of democratic discourse from the colonial period until the period of semi-civilian rule. But today our discussion will concentrate on the contemporary period. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thomas, let's start with the present. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with the broad contours of Myanmar's recent political history, but can you give us a quick summary of what happened in the lead up to 2011 and in the USDP period? It was a really significant transition around that time, obviously, and it's a period I'm very familiar with. I was living in Myanmar from 2006 to 2012, so yeah, it was something that this transition of work, somewhere seeing them firsthand. When I first arrived in Myanmar around 2006, it really felt like the depths of authoritarian rule at that point. It was really tight surveillance, very little freedom of speech or freedom of the press. Around 2007, listeners might remember the mass protests at that time, what was called the Saffron Revolution. And then after that, going into 2008 and Cyclone Nargis in May 2008, which devastating natural disaster with 150,000 people dying. The government just made an incredibly inept response and prevented international humanitarian aid as well. So it was a really extremely depressing period. But then after that, as we moved towards 2010, the military, the regime had had a, what they'd call a roadmap to democracy for some time. And Part of that was that they would move to elections and have a multi-party, so-called multi-party system. So that they, there was elections in 2010, completely rigged by the government and sort of military-backed USDP party won those elections. The feeling at the time was that, yeah, this is just another phase in the authoritarian rule of this military that's been ruling for, for decades. But what it did do was it was brought Thane Sane to the presidency and he was a ex-military general, and so there was lots of reasons to think that not much would change. But then after the 2010 elections and when Thane Sane began his presidency, it actually started to move a lot further than people expected. So there was incredible progress in lots of areas, liberalisation, greater freedoms of the press. There was They made some significant changes to the economy, which changed the disastrous economic policies of the military regime. There was new ceasefire deals with some of the ethnic minorities. So there's lots of really surprising 
changes that happened at that time. And one of the things that I was involved with was a campaign around a massive hydropower dam, Chinese funded hydropower dam that was in the north of the country. And there'd been a widespread campaign against this dam going ahead. And then really surprising thing in 2012, the Thangsane government announced that they were going to suspend the project. So that was just a massive indication that different era had arrived. It wasn't that brutal authoritarian system that had been earlier. So by the time I was living full-time in Myanmar in 2012, it was really a very hopeful period. So quite significant changes between, you know, 2006 and, and 2012. So we had that period of rapid change and I was in Myanmar in about the same time and it was really palpable. Yeah, it felt really different. But You've really set the scene nicely for our next question or our next point of discussion. I'm really interested in your take on the 2015 election when the National League for Democracy took power. Like Everyone recognises that this was a pivotal moment in Myanmar's struggle for democracy, a moment that there are a lot of hopes and dreams invested in. Looking back at the NLD period, how well do you think it delivered? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think at face value, as you said there, that it was an extraordinary moment. Like This party who had been this long-suffering opposition party for 25 years and experienced incredible repression and many people had spent a lot of those 25 years in jail. And so it was extraordinary that they were able to participate in an election and then win that election and come into power. So I think we don't want to take away from that as an extraordinary shift. <laughs> the assessment of the NLD period is a different question and really depends entirely on who you are and where you're placed in that. So I'm sure everyone's familiar with the Western kind of government assessment of Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD and the failure to protect the Rohingya, especially as Muslim minorities. So from that perspective, clearly there was massive failures. And if you were a Muslim minority or if any ethnic minority in Myanmar, then you probably have an extremely negative view of that period where very little progress was made on the peace process or... Yeah, there's still enormous amounts of fighting continuing. So NLD was seen very negatively and very Bamar sort of ethnic minority backed. And there was also another strand of Myanmar's sort of progressive elites who felt that the NLD was very centralized and hierarchical. But having said that, if you think of the general population in Myanmar, especially sort of average Bamar ethnic majority people, their lives probably improved quite significantly. And, and a lot of, especially the urban middle class, their lives became significantly better. Many people would have an extremely positive view of that period as one of reforms and change, Aung San Suu Kyi being in her role. So yeah, it depends entirely on what, where you're positioned as to how you view that period. Because hmm, I noted one of the people you quoted in the book thought that if the USDP had stayed in power and continued over in a sort of a more evolutionary process of change, it might have been better in the long run. Did you agree with that assessment or do you think that was misplaced? There was an extremely strong view from urban elites and activists in the lead up to the 2015 elections that the USDP, the military-backed USDP, were a more responsive party than the NLT, which seems counterintuitive. There is some evidence that they were actually more open to looking at reforms and seeking their views of citizens and perhaps the NLD were, were less like that. Overall, would it have been better if there was a more of a power sharing agreement? Perhaps that might have meant that the coup 
was less likely if there had been more the coup, the 2021 coup, I mean, it's clearly a response to, a, you know, a sense of fear from the military, perhaps if there'd been more of a, a sort of a power sharing in the preceding years, that may have been less likely. It, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those questions that's extremely hard to tell. But interesting to speculate on. Thomas, you say in your introduction that a big problem with the existing scholarship is that it largely presents Myanmar's recent political history as a battle between Democrats and authoritarians, when of course there are struggles within democracy movements and democratic parties as well, and in the authoritarian camp as well, we might say. What form did these internal struggles take in Myanmar after 2.11? Yeah, as I said before, those significant changes between the really brutal authoritarian period and then moving into that period of more openness under the USDP. It's one of those things where in the authoritarian period, it was just a really clear common enemy. You know, I think we see that now as well as post-2021 you know, coup, that there's a very clear common enemy that tends to cover over the fractures that are within democracy and movements. But yeah, after 2011, clearly some new fractures in the movement. Part of that was, I guess, I, know I don't really talk about this in the book, but part of that was just the tangible factors that a lot of people had suffered a lot in the preceding years. And when people started to be released from jail and take up positions in the NLD or in other key kind of parts of the democracy movement, it's always questions about how much recognition do you receive? You know, if you've been in jail for 10 years, who gets center stage in the movement and who doesn't? And when people have invested so much in it, there was a lot of fracturing along those sort of lines. But what I talk more about in the book was that the transition brought up questions about what democracy actually looks like. So in the authoritarian period and struggling, it didn't seem like a, a feasible, immediate dream to have democracy in the country. So you, they weren't really forced to think about what it actually might look like. So when democracy as an idea became tangibly a little bit closer, it started to raise a lot of questions about whether, I guess, was democracy mostly about the NLD winning power, the kind of the right party getting into power. And some people were kind of expecting that a democratic Myanmar basically means the NLD. Or is democracy more about much deeper transformation of culture? And maybe we'll get into more of this as we go, but particularly looking for reforms and a shift away from what many people saw as being a very hierarchical political culture. So so I guess that's the, the fractures were on some level very immediate about what happens when people suffer a lot and then who gets to take centre stage. But then there was also some other questions about how do we understand what democracy means when it suddenly seems more tangible than it was previously. Two things strike me from that answer, Thomas. And the first is just how similar that experience of the diffusion of focus from the common enemy that's so clear in an authoritarian regime to a more democratic period. And this is something we see elsewhere in the region, for in Indonesia, in the Philippines, in Timor. But your second observation, I think, is even more important. We have to remember, of course, that the developments in Myanmar in the last decade or so have been deeply embedded in a broader global context and specifically in Western-style projects of democratisation. You say that the NLD's understanding of democracy was very different from those embedded in Western-style liberal democracies, and as you've just mentioned, probably quite undercooked because of their singular focus in the authoritarian period. 
But can I ask you to parse some of the ways in which that difference emerges? Yeah, I'd probably be a little bit cautious about saying that or characterising an NLD understanding of democracy, partly because within my research, I spoke to a number of people within the NLD, but there's probably a diversity of views within the party. I was pointing more towards a particular narrative about democracy of which many people in the NLD that I spoke to would have narrated themselves. A lot of my experience when thinking more about the Western style of liberal democracy, a lot of my experience was to do with good governance projects or civil society strengthening projects. And there's a very explicit idea of what liberal democracy should look like within those aid program contexts. And a lot of it's about formal institutions and liberal values. And from that view, a lot of the assessment of the problem in Myanmar was about this personality-based politics. So rather than having the security of formal democratic institutions, Myanmar was kind of had an immature political culture where they were more interested in personalities like Aung San Suu Kyi rather than formal institutions. So that was the critique coming from the Western side, commonly. Within, amongst some sort of activists and members of AMD or other members of the democracy movement, there was a different kind of narrative that I talk about in the book, which I've called call the benevolence narrative. What it essentially was saying, it was sure we need formal institutions. We need democratic institutions. But actually what we need for democratization is we need people of goodwill or you know, benevolence is this Burmese word, sedana, which you know, kind of means this right intention. So these, if we've got these people of right intention, then we can give this sense of goodwill, then we can move forward. So it's not, they, weren't, they were saying personality politics is not in itself bad. It's just that in the past, we just haven't had the right people. We've had people who are selfish and sort of dictatorial in their style. And that was why Myanmar's had all these authoritarian years. All we need is the right people in leadership, and then we can move towards democracy. For the NLD, it was members of the NLD that I spoke to. One strand of thinking was that democracy was really about unifying behind the right people, which could make the country more democratic. So it's quite a personalized view of democracy, which is understandable given suffering and commitment that many of these activists and democratic leaders had gone through. So you can see why they have this view of personal commitment and personal values and how important that is. Yeah. So that's probably the main differences. It strikes me as you talk that it's, there's also a strong class politics in that, isn't there? I really noticed it in, when I was looking at post-independence discourse in Indonesia, where there was a real thing about, you know, the intellectual who had the education and the understanding and the moral character that would really lead people who didn't have such a developed understanding, people who were busy working or who had not been educated. So there's a real sense of the educated class in Indonesia as as a vector not only of modernity, but also of this moral leadership. Did you see any of that in what you're talking about with the NLD? I think absolutely. Yeah, there's probably quite a lot of similarities there in the sense that, I mean, me, the people that I was speaking to, obviously coming from sort of elite and educated backgrounds and saw, I mean, when I'm thinking about this sort of benevolence-centered idea, saw politics in quite a hierarchical way where the role of citizens was to unify and follow the, yeah, as you say, the sort of leaders with the right heart who might also have the the right ideas. Perhaps the slight difference is that so many of these activists had been in jail for so long that they hadn't finished their uni degrees or, I mean, they'd been trying to educate themselves in prison, but 
perhaps hadn't had, had the opportunities to have much more education because they'd been in jail for so long. And of course, we can't ignore Aung San Suu Kyi in this period. And you cite in the book Zolna, who describes her as the democratic beauty to the military's authoritarian beast. Looking back on this same period, this decade after the USDP started to take a semi-democratic approach, what is your assessment of her role, both strengths and weaknesses during this period? Yeah, it's a good question. I should just say that, that Zolna w- was using that description like he's sort of critiquing, using that as a way to critique the way that the West sort of simplifies it. So it wasn't him personally who was using that sort of really uh, Disney-style characterization. Yeah, but that's, she's such a central figure. And in my research, of absolutely, she's like, like a flashpoint of different ideas of democracy and different assessments of where the country is heading. Probably what I would say is that a lot of the way that we view Aung San Suu Kyi and a lot of the criticism that she's faced in the last few years is partly about the way that the West, Western observers have constructed an Aung San Suu Kyi and setting up her as being an icon, you know, Gandhi, Desmond Tutu, Bono from U2 writes a song about her. So we end up constructing something around her, even through the 90s and the 2000s, she winning the Nobel Peace Prize. She spent most of that time in prison, but meanwhile, in the West, we were making sort of an imaginary Aung San Suu Kyi. And then when she was released in the early 2010s and started to take up positions of power, many people got disappointed that she wasn't living up to the icon that had been sort of created around her. But I think it's important to realize that like, that wasn't something that she constructed. And perhaps that says more about you know, it says more about us than about her. So she was all along, and I think many people would say that she was determined and uncompromising, tough, centralized, sort of very centralizing leader. And probably she's been largely consistent in that. So it's not so much that she has changed. And I think more there's a sense in which we created a kind of imaginary around her that then we were disappointed in. Whereas I wonder whether people close to her would see her as actually being quite consistent through that time. I think that's a a very astute analysis. I think it's very clear the level of hero worship that was in the West with regard to her. But my question was more about her strengths and weaknesses in government. Do you mind addressing that a little bit? Thanks for uh, (laughs) pushing me back to the question. The weaknesses... I spoke to many people who were very happy to to point out her weaknesses, and that was around centralizing of decision-making and perhaps an inability to be making kind of political compromises. So I was, sorry, this is a slight tangent, but I was reading the Hamilton biography and talking, and it's very clear in that the difference between fighting a revolutionary war or, you know, being in opposition for that long and then governing and the, the kinds of attributes that are important in a democracy movement, being tough, uncompromising, staying to the task, being willing to be in jail, you know, all these things that are amazing about her don't necessarily translate as being attributes that are helpful in constructing a participatory style of leadership. So yeah, probably the two sides of her that have come out quite clearly that maybe she's incredible as a opposition, dogged opposition leader who has sacrificed a great deal, but perhaps that doesn't translate to being a person in leadership in a participatory manner. 
we can't all be everything. I want to actually step back from the immediate politics of Myanmar and speak more a bit about the sort of central themes of your book. And these really revolve around the relationship between activists, politicians and aid workers. I'd like you to start by just walking us through your conclusion about that relationship and explain why it's so important. I guess the central argument of the book is that these different groups embedded within different narratives or different sort of stories of Myanmar's democratisation. And that I think it's the relationship is really important. That these were relationships that I, I spent kind of years very much embedded in these kinds of interactions. And it's important because on one hand, there's huge European, North American support for democracy. I mean, all around the world, but also in Myanmar. And that's influential. There's big flows of money around democratization, good governance programs. And those programs end up being this interface between activists who might have some quite radical ideas with you know, democratic leaders and then aid agencies and aid workers who are part of the mix as they develop these programs. So we're not so much talking about grassroots views here of democracy. It's very much about elites. But yeah, there's this contest between different narratives within these programs where we see the interface between activists and aid workers and these political leaders. So I I, my feeling is that that is a really important nexus of relationships where some of these ideas about democratization are kind of thrashed out. And you characterize those narratives as liberal, benevolence and equality, where liberal is clearly the aid worker perspective, benevolence is um, the government's and equality is the activists. I mean, it's very nice to be able to pull out these kinds of overarching themes. How strongly did they resonate though? I mean, obviously strongly enough for you to identify them, but each group's quite complex. Do you think there was a unified approach within the group or do these simplified stories, as you call them, cover something that's much more complex? I try and be careful in the book to not quite delineate it so neatly that all aid workers have a liberal view and all activists have a more kind of radical you know, view of equality and LD leaders having a view of benevolence. So I, so I try to step back from that and look more at the way the different patterns in which the narratives are created. There is to some degree an association between, for example, aid workers and the way that democratization is discussed in, the, in more of a liberal kind of strand. Just probably step back slightly from as being neatly characterized like that. I think my basic point is that just in an incredibly complex context, how do political actors deal with that? And to some degree, there's a latching on to particular stories that you can align with and therefore make sense of your context. So that liberal idea of institution building, if you are an aid worker and you're in an unfamiliar country like Myanmar, but you do know a lot about liberal institutions, then that becomes extremely important to the way you see Myanmar's democratization. Now, I've talked a bit about the benevolence notion before. Probably the quality idea was a little bit different. And that was, yeah, I, I guess this was amongst that interviews with some more radical activists who were extremely disappointed with the NLD and with Aung San Suu Kyi and were seeking a much more radical transformation of political culture. So not just, you know, institutional change or having the benevolent leader in power. They were looking for changes in a hierarchy where they saw that the structures of the NLD government were incredibly hierarchical 
And they thought that that's the whole problem with our country, why we've ended up in all these authoritarian systems is because we've got this underlying ideas of authoritarianism. And that, they were thinking not just about politics, but schools and monasteries and and even in families that were very critical of this idea of hierarchical relationships. And we can go in more into Buddhist thought and perhaps some of the origins of that kind of thinking about hierarchies and whether they're good or bad. Yeah, but these more radical activists were seeking a more of a cultural transformation towards democratic equality. And they thought that democratic leaders, like Aung San Suu Kyi, were an obstacle to a more thoroughgoing democratization of the country and that they were persisting with kind of the old values, which they saw as extremely hierarchical. Yeah, no, thanks for that. But I, I do think I really resonated with this idea of simplified stories, even, you know, though they could be, they risk masking complexity. And it's really interesting to think about how they're mobilized. And of course, you, we'll come back to that later when we talk a bit more about your theoretical approach. But in the meantime, I'd like to start by asking you about your methodology. You're very careful to say that your analysis of the contemporary period is based on these instead of really a large set of in-depth interviews, but with a particular group of people, and that's the urban Bama, which is Myanmar's majority ethnic group. What decisions, as you know, from a methodological point of view, what decisions did you go through to end up focusing, you know, quite specifically on that group and not say um, different groups of activists or leaders within Myanmar society? I think that's just partly based around the kind of contribution that you can make as an individual. And there's colleagues and friends who have done excellent analyses of ethnic minority groups in Myanmar, and they've had these really deeply embedded experiences with those groups. And they're in a really great position to be able to to sort of research and write on those experiences. Partly it was related to sort of embedded experience that I had for years working with mostly, well, a range of activists, but mostly the Burma, sort of urban and Burma ethnic majority and some people who were more involved with, you know, NLD and political parties. So I feel like that was the most nuanced contribution that I could make would be towards looking at the ways that democracy is kind of contested in that context that I was really embedded in. But also clearly then that brings some limitations as well. And obviously one of the limitations is that it kind of skews it away from ethnic minority experiences in Myanmar, which are extremely important and would probably have quite different understandings of democracy. And I feel like in the book, I'm trying to be quite upfront about that, about the limitations of looking at that group. But also, as I said before, I think those interactions with aid workers and, and these activists and democratic leaders is an extremely important interaction and one that's really worth unpacking. But that's not to say anything about that sort of minority voices are any less important. And I think it's absolutely right. If one person tries to do everything, then it's not going to end up being very nuanced. But I was actually going to come back to this fact that you had been an aid worker for quite a long time before you did this thesis. I've supervised the PhDs of a number of former aid workers. And it strikes me that coming from that background, of course, brings huge benefits, including existing networks and, and lived experiences of the processes you're writing about. But it also brings some other challenges did you, as you started the work that this book's based on, how did you reflect on your own positionality in that respect? And what challenges did you face as a result of that lived experience? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that's really worth unpacking. As you say, there's, yeah, there's some, some particular kind of advantages that it gives you, but I think probably a couple of things. One is, the obvious one is that my background was in 
paid work and I and so as I came to academia and political theory more broadly I was approaching that fresh way rather than having a like many other academics of having had you know a decade of of engaging with the theory before you start your kind of empirical field research so I think I was on the back foot in some ways in terms of that and I think that's the case for many aid workers that we haven't had perhaps the background in theory I think there's another dimension of the, as you say about the positionality and I think that there's something in the way that the aid sector sets you up firstly in a way that is extremely bound up with sort of normative expectations of what is good so the aid industry for better or worse is very is filled with um, idealists who are trying to bring about change in the world but perhaps that is not necessarily a, always a reflective one where it's self-aware about the normative dimension of your expectations the other thing is within aid work I, I think there's a pressure towards simplification and understandability when you write you know you read NGO reports or they're presented in a certain way which tends to oversimplify and the strength of them being that they're trying to communicate in a clear way but perhaps the weakness is that it um, can overlook complexities and embed normative expectations that aren't necessarily acknowledged so yeah there's a, f- a few musings about the the uh the strengths and weaknesses of coming from an aid worker background no thanks for that i, I do think it's worth taking the time to reflect on that um, but moving more to the theoretical framework of the book, you say that you just part from an understanding that democracy is essentially contestable and that the meanings ascribed to it are inevitably open-ended and context-dependent. Was this something you really understood from the beginning or did it emerge through your experiences as a researcher in the field? Yes. I mean, I guess it's partly related to, I guess, the traditional academic experiences where you do your theoretical work and then you go to the field and you sort of examine how that relates to that years of being having this immersion in experiences in the field and then doing a PhD and engaging more with political theory. So I think it's probably more something that I had ideas that I had intuitively come to but didn't have the language to talk about. So when I started reading theories like, you know, reading Galley or um, some of the other sort of theory that I use in the book, they just seemed very intuitive from the experience is that I'd had that democracy is open-ended and context-dependent. It just seems so clearly obvious, given the experiences of, of working for so many years really directly with lots of me and my colleagues and friends. Partly it's related to the, the sequence by which you approach these things. As I alluded to earlier, your analysis really draws quite strongly on narrative theory, which you say helps illuminate the new dimensions of meaning of democracy. Thinking back on that methodology and that approach, what are the benefits and limitations of taking a narrative approach? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, from the start, I was really attracted to interpretive approaches. And I think particularly narrative, I think it was helpful in the sense that it, it prompted a different set of questions when, when you're thinking of meanings of democracy. I was in part reacting against research that I'd seen using public opinion surveys to look at meanings of democracy in Southeast Asia. And the methodology essentially was survey lots of people and ask them what democracy means and then and then you can kind of code the responses and um, inevitably a lot of the time it came up with, as um, democracy is freedom. But it seemed to me that meanings of democracy were far more embedded in st- stories and l- sort of narratives of democracy than 
in those just sort of immediate words or phrases that people might throw out. I feel like narrative brought you to a different set of questions where it was questions like, well, what problem is it that democracy is trying to solve? And that was very helpful in distinguishing different, like I was saying before, about whether the problem is personality-based politics or whether is it is the problem that we just don't have the right people in politics. Questions like that and questions about how do political actors constructing themselves and others in the story and positioning themselves, I felt just gave much more nuanced interpretations of meanings of democracy than some of those other, yeah, as I said before, parts of more public opinion-based surveys. So, so that was why I found it helpful. I guess narrative theory has limitations in the sense that it's very you know, embedded in a particular time and a particular context. I think there's probably also, as I alluded to before, there's a danger in these kinds of methodologies in perhaps overplaying difference and perhaps you were getting at this before and thinking about then how neatly narratives might fit and there's a temptation to try to find differences and not necessarily overlaps so as researchers you know you get excited when you feel like you've uncovered some different way that different actors might interpret democracy but not give quite as much credence to the ways in which there is overlap so yeah i'm conscious of those kinds of limitations in interpretive methodologies and narrative particularly yeah, no, I think that's important. And at the same time, it, it brings us back to that question of the battle you were describing between the Democrats on one side and the authoritarians on the other, and how, in fact, it's much more complicated than that. One concept that my colleague and I have been playing with is that of authoritarian innovations, which Nicole Carato, who's also a co-host on this podcast, by the way, and Diego Fossati introduced when discussing Southeast Asia. And they use this concept to describe a sense of democratic practice so that, in fact, reduce democratic space. And the utility of this concept is that it's not just useful in places like Indonesia or in Cambodia, places where there's an authoritarian or, a, you know, a not quite um, normative democratically a democratic society, but also in places like the US or Australia, because these innovations can be used in any kind of regime setting. But what brought me to this is when I was reading your forward, when you talk about the 21 coup, it really resonated with my understanding of this concept. You talk about the military invoking all these ideas of democracy, well, at the very moment that they're seizing control. And this made me wonder if you thought that the concept of authoritarian innovations would actually be quite helpful as a complement to your narrative approach. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. And I've, had it, I've read briefly that work. I think it's really right in the sense that authoritarianism is often used as this fairly bland blanket term and it's you know authoritarianism is something that doesn't have innovations whereas clearly we see very innovative actions by authoritarian governments as you ask that question though i i find myself thinking of the differences between the context immediately after the coup when i wrote the forward to the book and the context now so the book was basically in, at the press as the coup happened. And then I, I just managed to sort of slip in this forward immediately after it. And at the time, it did sound a bit like that. And perhaps the expectation was that the military regime would gain control of the country, or most areas of the country, and then be able to play out these kinds of authoritarian innovations. So at the time, I and perhaps, you know, moved to rigged elections and other things quite soon. So that was a 
one possibility at that time. I think what's changed over the last two years since the coup is that we're just nowhere near that now. I think the military would love to be doing authoritarian innovation, but they're just not there. There's the revolution has been far broader and regime has far less control over the government, that, sorry, over the, the population than they were expecting. So we're just not there. They're, the regime's fighting on too many battles to be thinking about uh, authoritarian innovations. There's still obviously talk about, you know, the regime talks about elections at some point, but they really, their effective control over the country is so minimal now and the armies and, and sort of other people's defense forces and all kinds of armed groups around the country, as well as the more democratic revolutionary opposition, it's just not there. Like the military just doesn't have as much control as they would have hoped. Absolutely agree with that. And in fact, Mike and I are writing a piece as we speak about the failure of authoritarian innovations in Myanmar from a labor perspective. But I guess the reason I thought it might be interesting for your analysis is because it's actually a lot about discourse, right? It's about Governments using very democratic discourse. We're doing this to improve people's access to, to um, democratic space, to improve this or that in a democratic way. But in fact, the actual measure is is actually designed to reduce democratic space. And where I thought it would be interesting to reflect on this is not so much after the coup, even though that's sparked this thought in me, but actually in the NLD period, where you've got an ostensibly much more strongly democratic government than the USDP, but at the same time, quite a few measures that were taken in that period were quite anti-democratic. Yeah, no, that's a great to point out. And sorry, yeah, I took it more as being sort of post-coup, but I actually wrote an article with a, a colleague, Vanessa Lamb, in the year before the coup, looking at the NLD government and a massive sort of urban infrastructure plan for New, new Yangon City, which is to build a whole new set of suburbs just next to current Yangon. And yeah, essentially that article is about the way that the NLD government controlled the consultation process, where they were talking about consultation and openness and where the NLD is democratic period now, but actually they were heavily constraining the ability of the population to have input into this plan, which was a hugely problematic plan given it was being built on a floodplain and it was requiring enormous amounts of Chinese investment. So yeah, there were significant concerns, but they just wished being shut down. Ostensibly democratic consultation processes. So, so it's, yeah, it's very much what you're talking about there about, even though we didn't use the language of authoritarian innovation, it was very much along those lines. And this leads me to my final question about the book, Thomas. I sense from it, and you referred to this before actually, is that in some ways your book was overtaken by history. You'd written it, it was at the press, and then the coup happened. And I think, you know, you recovered from that really well with the addition of the forward and the final chapter on Myanmar's future challenges. But for our audience, I'm sure some of the earlier career scholars listening to this would be really interesting, interested in hearing how it felt to be in that position. Yeah, it's a really good question. And yeah, it's the nature of academia, right? That we sort of analyze things, but then, yeah, history history moves on. It doesn't necessarily match. And, and yeah, that's, yeah, I, I mean, I, essentially it's a book about the what I saw as being the key new context as Myanmar moved away from an authoritarian period and always it was surfacing always other issues about democracy and then we just go headlong back into an authoritarian period. That was challenging. I, I guess I felt that there's still, it doesn't unravel all of it. The, the, the contests that I talk about are still there. They're just 
perhaps suppressed now within this revolutionary context. I think another point that I make in the book is about the really long arc of narrative formation, that there's elements of, for example, what some NLD leaders, the way that they might narrate the idea of democracy in their country. And there's elements of that that are back to go back to previous military periods and the independence was movement was such a, a formative set of ideas. So I think there's really long arcs in some ways in the way that political contexts are interpreted. So I think that we will see very similar things resurface in new ways, perhaps, you know, in the coming years as if the context stabilizes in some kind of way, we might see these kinds of contests re-emerge. Yeah. So while there's in the short term immediate sense of being overtaken by history, as you say, my hope is that there's some much deeper things that are revealed through the book that will resurface in the future. And with that, Travis, I'd like to thank you for your insights into the political history and discourse of this very complex country. But just before we wrap up, would you like to tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm really interested generally in the idea of highly valued political concepts like democracy or freedom, and then exploring the ways that different actors give them meaning and bringing out or exploring the contests and the positioning of different people around those highly valued words. So I'm looking at with a colleague, uh, Ed Leckelbeer, at the moment is looking at the idea of localization in the aid sector, which is a really common word that everyone loves, but looking at how different kinds of meanings are attached to that notion of localization. So in particular, at the moment, looking at sort of more technical UN-generated ideas of localization versus a much more decolonization-inspired ideas of localization. So yeah, that's the current project. Sounds great. Well, thank you, Thomas Wells, for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss narrating democracy in Myanmar, the struggle between activists, democratic leaders, and aid workers. You've been listening to the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to hundreds of other conversations about Southeast Asia-related books on this channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I look forward to joining you again before too long for another conversation about a new book in Southeast Asian Studies. 